Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, seeding wheat early can provide several benefits without many risks. That's been the focus of Brian Barris, an Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada research scientist based at Lethbridge. He's been evaluating ultra-early seeding for wheat. And rather than using the calendar, seeding started when the soil temperature was plus 2 by 10 a.m. There were several test sites and cooperator trials in various parts of Alberta and Saskatchewan. And Brian will share some of the outcomes of five years of research. A Manitoba ranch is using several production practices to lengthen the grazing season and reduce the number of days on winter feed. Nervous Brothers Angus is located near Shellmouth, Manitoba, north of Russell and near the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border. Aaron Nervous will discuss the holistic approach that they have taken with an emphasis on pasture rejuvenation, where they use a hooves, not harrows approach to improving old pastures. After the break, Brian Barris. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada research scientist Brian Barris has been researching what he calls ultra-early seeding of wheat for about five years now. Brian, when did you start thinking about the concept of this extra-early seeding of wheat? So this this whole topic of ultra-early seeding systems got me thinking... Um, several years ago probably around 10 years ago when i was going traveling down to the montana on a year like this year actually where early on in the year um in march late march though there were farmers in montana uh prepping land for planting and um it seemed a bit counterintuitive from what i learned growing up on a farm because in southern alberta for example we always talked about or there was this assumption that if you were in by May 10th, you were fine. And, and really, that's just a context around um, insurance, crop insurance deadlines. And there's no biological um, meaningfulness applied to that. And so um, the other thing we see, obviously, is that we're able to get on the land earlier. And if, if you, it doesn't matter how you think or what's behind or the cause of climate change. Certainly what we know is we're getting on the land earlier. So we've heard a lot of talk about changes in our climate over the last 10 to 20 years, but you see this as uh, one of the benefits. You don't have to you don't have to think that change is something that we've created ourselves, but the fact is, you know, you talk to a grower like Don Bowles here who just retired, um, farmed for 40 plus years, but he said at a meeting I was presenting at, you know, if I if I look back to when I first started farming to now um, I could probably seed six weeks earlier so um, that's one generation so clearly something's happening even for somebody like that to concede who's you know not 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 exactly a member of Greenpeace so um, and we see other models as well saying the same thing. We're moving in a direction where we should be thinking about planting earlier. So we need a system to sort of support that. So when you came up with this concept of ultra early seeding, you expected to meet with some resistance. So what was your strategy with that? You know, we had to start with a proof of concept because I knew we would probably face some pushback on what we were proposing. 
Um, and so these were the hypotheses that we set up. We were wanting to understand if conventional or even um, novel germplasm would help if it was coupled with optimum agronomics that focused in on on this type of a system. Um, and the objectives we heard was trying to develop that system where we could actually be successful in planting wheat into very cold soils, um, knowing that if we did that, we would experience a lot of abiotic stress to that seed once we planted. Instead of following a uh, consistent calendar date, you follow soil temperature. So I understand the goal was to start at a soil temperature of plus two by 10 o'clock in the morning. And you had several sites uh, and trials in various parts of Saskatchewan and Alberta. We definitely showed there was no risk. We showed that we didn't suffer a yield penalty. And then we took it to another step. So we progressed to a more of a systems question around planting dates, seeding depth, and so on. And and the short and long of that one is shallower is better, and it's still better to maintain those high seeding rates of at least 400 seeds per square meter or 40 seeds per square foot, because it's giving us that good stand to begin with. And we know that both the earliness of the planting and the high seeding rates will give us earlier harvests and greater uniformity and there's just all sorts of benefits around that well what did you find was the uh, biggest producer concern surrounding ultra early seeding wheat Uh, was it a hard frost there was a spring that we had two years ago i believe where we had some nasty frost events there were some nights i believe it got down as low as minus 11 and for cereals we used to look at this quite a bit with cover crops but Basically, if you get to minus eight, that's a frost event that can terminate a cereal crop um, at times. So I was very worried. I thought I was going to get run out of Dodge City there by having this idea. But, you know, there was no issue. There was a little bit of leaf necrosis on, say, the top third of the leaves. It was in like a two to three leaf stage. But that was it. And, you know, the guys that reported back said that they've never had as high yields as they did with switching to this type of a a seeding system, and they're now committed to it. So what is your next step? And now that you've shown that this can work, how does this influence things like uh, fertilizer applications and uh, weed management? Did you look at that? And so we can't do, obviously, a pre-seed burn-off if we're planting in February or early March because there are no weeds to kill other than maybe some uh, winter annuals, but I'm not even sure about that. So we do have some options, though, with residual herbicides. Um, we've done some work, and now um, pyroxysulfone is registered for use in wheat. Um, so that's a very effective residual herbicide that could be applied in the fall um, to use for an, a replacement or an alternative to a pre-seed burndown. Nitrogen, and just trying to flesh out a little bit more these uh, responses of conventional varieties. So some other things that we're looking at um, currently is that whole question of, well, is is there really a configuration better suited to this with respect to disc versus knife? Um, So we've ran the same style of uh, study, um, but in this case, we're looking at knife versus opener. Um, We are, you know, looking at the dual fungicide versus no seed treatment and using those same soil temperature triggers. 
Um, and we've only got very preliminary data on this, but there, there's some interesting results, which are kind of, um, you know, funny to talk about so far, but not really, I would say, bet the farm on. But so far, we've got an advantage with the knife opener. So that would suggest that um, we had good conditions, so we didn't have frozen ground and, and so on. Um, so that led to significantly better yield so far, but that's very preliminary data. The other funny thing that we observed, and I wouldn't go down a rabbit hole trying to figure it out, but the knife gave us significantly higher protein. Um, so did using a seed treatment and um, um, waiting too long. Not only do you suffer a yield penalty, but it looks like you also suffer a protein penalty. Sometimes we'll see lower yields provide better protein because of that inverse relationship between yield and protein. But in this case, uh, um, not at all. Brian, what's the uh, next step with your research? Thanks to Sask Wheat, um, we're going to take what we've been doing with CWS now that we've concluded that. And there's a lot of questions around whether or not Durham responds in the same way. So we're going to be taking a look at um, specifically to um, Durham, where we um, run it in both Saskatchewan uh, and Alberta starting uh, this coming year. And, you know, lastly, back to scale up, is there, you know, is there, you know, is this going to work at a farmer scale? And so Jay Schultz was one of the first ones to give this a try in his area. He called me, he was saying like, there's nobody out, nobody out in the field right now but I've got the conditions you're talking about. My soil temperature is at two. And I said, go out and plant. Um, and that's what he did. And he enjoyed really, really positive results. And then terrifying results came that I thought would run me out of the country because that was the year where uh, we had almost historic um, frost events and, and not little frost events, like minus eight. I think there was even one observation of minus 11. And so I thought, that this early ultra early thing was going to be toast but it just browned a bit of the leaf in the top third and that was it and so i think it really spoke to the resiliency of adopting such a system when you can do so so i guess the bottom line uh is uh, producers need to be realistic about this approach um and we're not being pie in the sky and delusional about the fact that you should all run out and start doing this tomorrow um we do know that there are some risks. You have a con, you know a conservapack type or Dow John Deere type knife opener, which is fairly aggressive, and the ground was still frozen. Um, you could rip up some pretty ugly aggregate, um, but we only saw that one out of about 14 site years. So it's not something you're going to experience a lot. Um, and if you have a disc or goal, whatever, you're not going to experience it at all. Um, but something to keep in mind, um, this isn't something that's going to be able to be achieved every year at every farm, but it's something that more often than not should be a consideration and is doable uh, more so than now. Brian Barris is an Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada research scientist based in Lethbridge, Alberta. After the break, Manitoba ranchers push the envelope when it comes to reducing the number of days their herd is on winter feed. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarland. Aaron Nervous is with Nervous Brothers Angus at Shellmouth, Manitoba. 
Erin, your farm uses several different approaches during the production and grazing season to try and reduce the time that the cattle have to be on winter feed. And one approach is what you call hooves, not harrows. I I think it's fairly self-explanatory, but uh, maybe just explain what you mean by that. Well, it basically means using animal impact to improve the land and grass versus using iron or conventional approaches. Every time you use iron, I mean, there's the cost of the equipment, and there's the cost of the upkeep and maintenance of the equipment, there's fuel, there's insurance. You know, if you're refeeding something, there's the cost of taking it out of production, tillage, possibly spraying, there's the refeeding. It all costs a lot of money. And we found over the years through higher impact, and we're not as high as some, but through high impact cattle impact through hooves and their grazing actions can really act as a tool to rejuvenate forage stands in itself. And with that, you know, we're, we're grazing a lot of stockpile grass too at certain times of the year in fall and spring. And a lot of that has gone to seed. And when the cattle go in there, they're trampling a, a large part of it too. And those seeds are getting punched into the ground. And we see a reseeding effect naturally just due to the cattle punching in the mature seeds of a stockpiled uh, forage stand. So it's quite impressive. And, you know, machinery has its place, but you can also, you know, open your mind up a little bit and think about what other ways you can do it. And the animal is um, underutilized in that respect. And you're shortening the time that cattle are on feed. Uh, It's about 120 days? For our operation and what our goals are, we want to push the grazing as long as possible. And we think we can get to the 100-day mark on winter feed. It's, it's 20 more days than what we're currently doing. And I think we can get there. We just have to manage. It's a careful, tricky balance of, you know, your land base, your cattle numbers. Right now, if we wanted to graze more, we'd have to get a little more land or fewer cows or make our current land base more productive. So it's kind of a tricky little balance there to get to that. But we'll get there. And uh, how about your calving? Is your operation early or late? Our due date is April 25th. So the bulk of our calves are born in the month of May. Well, basically in the first two weeks of May, that's when most of our calves are born. So we do a 60-day breeding season or three cycles. So we're going into June as well on the tail end on the second and third cycle. There are some producers that even push, you know, with a there's, there's a thought process that true na- nature or natural calving should be kind of when the wild animals, the deer, um, have their young, which is a little bit later than what we do. But we we like to wean our calves in December, and if we calve later, we wouldn't be able to wean in December. We'd be weaning early, which we don't really like. And so just for a variety of reasons, uh, May seems to work quite well for us. Uh, you run cow-calf pairs, but I understand you also sell bulls and replacement female breeding stock? We've been steadily growing that business over time. So right now we're selling breeding bulls. We sell them as two-year-olds. And for the most part, we're selling to like-minded producers in a sense, mostly later calvers and, and people that are more in tune with like, a maternal, more efficient type of animal although there are people that use our genetics to crossbreed and also for calving ease as well because uh, with a 
moderate frame and the genetics we use, they're naturally calving fairly easily. Um, we're also selling replacement heifers, which is kind of something that's, that's grown a lot in the last few years. And we're marketing, depends on the year, but 80 to 100 replacement females off the cow at weaning. So they're just calves, but we sell them as breeding females. And the, the people that buy from us have intentions of, of taking them and making them into mother cows. Aerial seeding of crops is not a new idea for many farmers, particularly those in flood-prone regions. And there are a few examples where research was conducted with aerial seeding forages. Results have been variable due in part to weather or timing or seedbed contact. Aaron had said that they've had some success with aerial seeding of alfalfa. They contracted a traditional spray plane operator that placed the seed in the tank area where the chemical or fertilizer would typically go. And instead of being distributed through a nozzle, there is a side gate at the bottom where a manifold fits under the plane and the seed spreads out, blowing out by force. Now, the plane flew over the field, planting inoculated alfalfa at a rate of approximately 10 pounds per acre. And while it seemed to take a while for it to establish, Aaron said two years post-seeding, the stand rejuvenation has been termed a success. The first year, they seeded 400 acres, and the following year, they planted approximately 300, both times they were flying during the third week of May. Now, Aaron added that they relied on hoof action from the grazing cattle to help increase seed-to-soil contact. The Nervous family is continuing to experiment with aerial seeding and have expanded beyond their flood-prone land and are now testing the idea on top lands. Aaron is also quick to point out that his experience may not be the same for everyone, saying that the stars aligned for them and it worked out well. You can learn more about the Nervous Farm experiences on the Beef Cattle Research blog. And Aaron Nervous is very active on Twitter, and you can follow him at Nervous Brothers, B-R-O-S, Angus. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for the week of March 8, 2021. The Global Institute for Food Security researchers have announced the successful mapping of an entire set of canola genes. GIFS is a member of an international group of leading academics and commercial seed companies from the U.S., Canada, Europe and Israel. The consortium includes Bayer, Corteva, Nutrien and Nuseed. Each member contributed their own canola lines and received the full pan-genome comparison results. Building a pan-genome database in canola is key to expanding the crop's productivity and will help increase its use. The House of Commons passed second reading of a bill this week on biosecurity concerns on farms. Conservative MP John Barlow introduced the amendment to the Health of Animals Act, which would make it an offence to enter a place in which animals are kept if doing so could result in the exposure to a disease. Currently, there is nothing which addresses trespassers. The legislation would also increase penalties for groups and organizations who encourage individuals to threaten the biosecurity of animals and workers. The Western Canadian wheat growers said there have been major investments to agriculture since the elimination of the Canadian Wheat Board nine years ago. Wheat Growers Secretary-Treasurer Jim Wickett says Canadian farmers have been able to choose who they sell their grain to based on price, quality, delivery dates, contractual terms and location. Wickett said $3 billion in investment would not have taken place without a full free market system. 
Another United States Department of Agriculture report has come and gone without much fanfare. The March World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates released this week was described by traders as boring. U.S. corn, soybean and wheat ending stocks were unchanged from the February report. Soybean statistics from Argentina dropped roughly 500 million metric tons, while Brazilian soybean stocks increased about 1 million metric tons. Farmers in the southern United States will begin planting corn in the next two weeks. Farm organizations are combing through the fine details of draft regulations for the federal greenhouse gas offset credit system. The actual details on how farmers will earn and get paid for carbon offset still needs to be determined. However, it appears the focus will be on future farming practices like seeding cover crops as opposed to zero till, which has been around for more than 20 years. Todd Lewis is the president of the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan. He said there is now a 60-day comment period on the draft proposal from Environment and Climate Change Canada. Lewis said there will be no shortage of suggestions from his group and other farm organizations who all seem to be on the same page. The global community continues to seek out what Saskatchewan products, namely farm and food products, provide. Saskatchewan enjoyed a large increase in year-over-year exports in January, according to monthly export merchandise numbers released by Statistics Canada. Merchandise exports increased by 14.6% in January 2021 compared to the previous January. Saskatchewan ranked second in percentage change among provinces on a seasonally adjusted basis. A BC rancher is the 2020 BMO Celebrating Women in Agriculture honoree. Linda Allison is a fourth-generation rancher out of Princeton, B.C., and has spent years as a leader in the cattle industry, a director at Canada Beef, nine years with B.C.'s Cattlemen's Association, and was the chair of the Canadian Beef Cattle Research, Marketing, Development and Promotion Agency. Allison is a strong advocate for Canadian agriculture and has experience working with a diverse group of producers, government officials and industry stakeholders. The University of Saskatchewan has been awarded $6.7 million from the Canada Foundation for Innovation to help conserve bison and other threatened animal species. The research program includes working with Indigenous communities to develop the world's first bison genome biobank at the university's Livestock and Forage Centre of Excellence. A key benefit of the project to beef producers will be the development of new genomic tools to enable trait selection, enhance genetic diversity, and diagnosis of disease-causing microbes in herds. BASF Digital Farming has signed an agreement with AgVisor Pro to provide farmers with expanded access to a local accredited agronomic advisor. Farmers using the Zarvio Scouting app on their smartphones will be able to access the additional support. Both apps were Ag in Motion Innovation Program Award winners in 2019 and 2020, respectively. Commercial lead for Zarvio, Brent Nickel, says the connectivity platform will provide another way to assist farmers with identifying problems in their field. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarlane for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.